Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about Trump's announcement to run for president and the way that it backfired pretty badly on him. I interview Senator Gary Peters, who led the Democratic Senate campaign committee through a hugely successful midterm cycle where Democrats are actually poised to expand their Senate majority, about what works compared to previous cycles, and what the plan is for the more difficult Senate map of 2024. And I'm joined by former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirshner to discuss the appointment of a special counsel to investigate Trump, whether it means indictment is more likely, and what it means if Trump holds true to his threats not to participate. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So as expected, Donald Trump has announced that he'll be running for president in 2024. That part wasn't too surprising. I don't think any of us didn't expect that it was going to happen. But here's what was pretty surprising. The way that it was received by everyone, but especially by the right. So first of all, Fox News literally cut away from the speech, which, I mean, just think about that. This is the former president of the United States, the leader of the Republican Party, the guy who Fox News itself had basically staked its entire survival on making his presidential announcement, a moment that should, in theory, be historic. And even Fox didn't carry the whole thing. Um, And I think there are two reasons here. First, it was boring. I mean, just from a purely entertainment standpoint, Trump droned on about immigrants and drugs and the usual nihilistic hellishness that was cooked up in Stephen Miller's mind. He congratulated himself on his time in office and he pretended that he accomplished a lot of stuff that he didn't accomplish. I mean, if you've watched any of the hundreds of rallies that he's done, you've heard this speech. And so just in terms of the incentive to let this thing play in its entirety, regardless of its historical merit, it was just too boring. And I think it shows that for the same reason Trump succeeded in 2016, because he was rude and cruel and flashy and brash, which, by the way, is who he's always been, that was new in politics. And so people wanted to watch it. But in the same way that that was always Trump, It remains Trump. He didn't adapt. He didn't change. And so we've already seen it. It's boring. It's like season one of that show that was exciting and new. And now we're in season six and and uh, the plot is identical. People stop watching. And considering the only thing Trump had going for him was how exciting he was to watch, whether you loved him or you hated him. The fact that he's boring now is like outright kryptonite to him. So that's one reason that it wasn't received with all the pomp and circumstance that he hoped for. But the other reason is that I think we all know why he announced, and it wasn't from a position of strength. He wasn't responding to the will of the people. He was doing it from a position of weakness. He was doing it because he thinks he can use this announcement as cover against all the investigations bearing down on him right now. He's trying to protect himself legally. And so he'll announce early, and then when these probes that are already ongoing continue to progress, he'll be able to say, oh, well, the only reason I'm being investigated is because I'm running for president and uh, the communist Democrats want to help Joe Biden. And of course, that is why Merrick Garland immediately appointed a special counsel, someone who's not a Biden appointee. But that's not going to stop Trump from using this talking point anyway. Uh, I'll talk more with Glenn Kirshner about exactly this point in an interview coming up. Now, aside from the legal stuff, he's also trying to wrestle some of the attention away from Ron DeSantis, who's basically become the heir apparent of the Republican Party. Here's a little bit of what we heard from Republicans, former Trump lackeys, as far as Ron DeSantis is concerned would not turn my back on President Trump. I am a huge supporter of his. Uh, But with that, 
I love Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, he is America's governor and he has these same policies. Do you see the former president a need for him to go to Georgia? I, I think we've got to make strategic calculations. Um, governor DeSantis, I think he should be welcome to the state given what happened last night. Oh, you've, got to look, you've got to look at the realities on the ground and Herschel Walker. We've got to win the Senate. That's it, guys. Got to win the Senate. Yeah, so uh, not great if you're Trump and your whole shtick is that you command complete loyalty from the GOP. But the point more broadly is that Trump is losing his grip on the party. Like People, for the first time, are feeling comfortable abandoning him in public, which they've never been able to do. Uh, they recognize that his utility is shrinking. And, and that's part of the irony here, that everything Trump does is transactional. We know that. He'll use people until they're no longer useful, and then he'll discard them, usually publicly, usually try to humiliate them. And now, knowing that Trump is not some electoral juggernaut, knowing that his endorsed candidates were a bunch of losers in midterms, knowing that he's turning people away from the GOP, Republicans are finally recognizing that the person who's lost his usefulness here is Donald Trump. And so now he's being discarded in the same way that he spent years discarding everyone else. There's just like some poetic justice in that. So again, he didn't announce because he has some grand mandate to announce. He announced yet again uh, to try to save his own ass and because he's insecure about someone else getting all the attention on the right. And not only was that evident in his speech, it was evident in everyone's reaction to that speech. Uh, one more point I want to make here, and that is about covering him as we head into 2024 and, and just generally learning from the mistakes of the past. So first off, I do think that the media more broadly recognized its role in elevating Trump, you know, the hours of broadcasting empty podiums on TV waiting for his arrival, the years of transcribing his bullshit claims without any context. I do honestly believe that there's going to be a lot of correcting for that. Already when Trump announced, PBS wrote, uh, breaking Donald Trump who tried to overthrow the results of the 2020 election and inspired a deadly riot at the Capitol in a desperate attempt to keep himself in power, has filed to run for president in 2024. I saw similar headlines from other outlets, all with this newfound context that we didn't see before. So I think there is going to be a lot less hanging on his every word, um, not just to course correct from 2016, but also just generally for the reason I gave earlier. It's, it's just boring now. Like there's only so much that some deranged lunatic yelling about windmills is going to garner attention. Yes, it was exciting a few years back. Now it's just tired. Um, personally, I did cover the Trump speech and I wrestled a lot about whether or not to do it. And ultimately, this is what I landed on. I think that at this moment, knowing why he was announcing, the real reasons that he was announcing that I laid out earlier, and having just watched his entire slate of gubernatorial candidates and secretary of state candidates lose in midterms, Making sure that people know that Trump remains the face of the GOP isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like we've got runoffs in Georgia coming up in just a couple of weeks. If Trump wants to remind voters who just repudiated him that he remains the head of that party, then, you know, be my guest. He endorsed Herschel Walker on that stage. And then Raphael Warnock immediately cut a campaign ad of Trump endorsing Herschel Walker, just using his exact words. If that's not a testament to just how much of an albatross around Republicans neck Trump is, then nothing is. So I think in this instance, knowing that Trump is actually doing himself and his party more harm than good by announcing, I think it was worth it to show the speech. I also think that there will be relatively little coverage of him and his campaign and his rallies moving forward. I don't intend to cover them. I did very little to no coverage of them over the last couple of years. I think at the end of the day that he does want attention. And so aside from particular moments, whether it be for investigations or indictments or whatever, I don't intend on giving him the exact thing that he's looking for. Next up is my interview with Senator Gary Peters.
Now we've got the U.S. Senator from Michigan and the head of the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, Gary Peters. Thank you for coming on and congratulations on the huge win uh, this election cycle. Well, great. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for having me on your, your program here. But thanks for the congratulation. It was hard fought, uh, but we're not done yet either. We still got one more, one more race uh, coming up here uh, shortly. And, and we'll talk about that race. But first, you know, heading into this election cycle, everyone was basically at each other's throats over whether we should talk about economic issues or abortion, inflation, crime. With the benefit of hindsight now, uh, what do you believe that the takeaway was from this election cycle? Well, I think, uh, you know, the messaging, you know, we have to remember when, when we're talking about these Senate races uh, around the country, messaging also has to be about what folks in the individual states uh, care about. So you've got a, uh, every candidate uh, or incumbents are going to look at issues differently depending on their state, what they should prioritize based on what the people are telling them in that state. We, we knew that uh, you, we really couldn't nationalize the race when you're, when you're running in a midterm uh, and you have the uh, you have the White House. Uh, we know that that's a, historically a very tough position for the party in power to be. In fact, yeah. historically, uh, several seats are lost uh, during that time. So we wanted to make sure we localized. Uh, the, the, what I've used, and I've run really tough races over the years, uh, which is why my colleagues asked me to do this, is that uh, normally the, the best approach in that kind of environment is not to run as a U.S. senator or a congressperson, but to run as a mayor localized talk about how what you, the work you're doing is going to impact local communities in your state or how it's going to impact your state and so you did see variations uh, in each of our states and clearly our candidates know their states very well and that's why they won now what did you do differently as dscc chair since you took over in, in 2021 well i think one of the the major strategic decisions uh, that we made very early uh, was to focus on our ground operation and understand that that was going to be the, the difference in these races. Uh, I knew going into this race, we knew historically the precedent was uh, was going to be rough. Uh, and I also know, knew that these races are going to be very close. We were hoping to all be in the margin of error when it came to election time. Uh, and uh, that's where we ended up being. Uh, and it's not a surprise. You know, there was a lot of narrative out there. All these races are tightening. The numbers are coming together. It's like I could have told you that a year and a half before it happened. These are battleground states. Battleground states, by definition, are going to be very, very close. And when you're in a close race, the difference is getting your voters actually to the polls. A ground operation is critically important. We put substantial resources in with uh, our incumbents and our challengers and our key states. And in fact, I, I think the first time in modern history at the DSEC, we put more money into ground and field than we did into independent expenditures that would have been the television ads. You know, television ads only go so far. Uh, we needed to get close, uh, kind of use a football analogy. We had to get down to the five-yard line. But when you're on the five-yard line, you need a field operation and a ground operation to get you across the goal line. Uh, and that was a, a major strategic decision we made early. And you, and you have to make it early because you have to fund it over a long period of time. And it clearly paid off. So that's actually a, a great point. And I did want to ask about exactly that. You know, in terms of the communications uh, landscape, you have the old model of TV and mailers. I'd assume that in some ways that's obsolete. So what's the priority moving forward in terms of the most effective way to reach people, the most effective communications method? Well, it's a complicated answer to that question because there's so many ways to communicate now. So the key is you have to be in a lot of areas. There is no one silver bullet as to how you reach everybody. You mentioned how it's changed, you know, TV back in the day, if you were on TV and if you were on three major networks, you were covering everybody. Right. That's clearly not the case now. Uh, folks aren't watching TV. You still have to do TV ads, but you have to be—you uh, have to have a very robust digital program. 
you have to be on, in the mail. You've got to do all things, which is unfortunately why the cost of these campaigns have gone up uh, quite a bit. But I'm still a believer in in field, knocking doors, getting activists, talking person to person and engaging people in that, particularly when it's about turning out your base, which is why we invested so much uh, in, in that field operation and why it's that kind of operation that's going to make sure we win in Georgia on December 6th as well. But if, if you're not doing all of those things, uh, you're going to be missing people. Uh, but you, the still old fashioned uh, person to person, friend to friend uh, is still, in my mind, a difference maker. And it certainly played out uh, in this last election. Yeah. Now, this was an election cycle where it's very clear that Republican extremism was rejected at the ballot box. And yet we had people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, um, who you may remember for having objected to the electors on January 6th. They came out and gave a bunch of uh, excuses as to why Republicans lost. And miraculously, none of them included any reference to the same Republican extremism that they themselves espouse. So what's your response to these Republicans like Cruz and Hawley? Well, uh, clearly they're out of touch uh, with with where the American people are. And that's why I was just so, so proud of what happened in this election, that people clearly uh, rejected uh, uh, very extreme candidates. And, you know, that was probably our, our, the best strength we had going into this election was that the contrast between Democrats running, whether they were an incumbent or a challenger, and their Republican opponent was very extreme. Yeah, One, uh, certainly saving democracy was very clear when you had so many election deniers or election liars, really, is what they are uh, there that people uh, said, you know, enough of that. And then you looked at the other major issue that drove so much of our turnout, which was uh, the abortion issue. And after the Dobbs decision, there's no question that women in particular, but all of us, realized that a fundamental right was being taken away after over a half a century of, of precedent. Uh, that motivated people. And then you look at the Republican candidates who are extreme on the issue. They, they believe no exception for rape, for incest, for the health of the mom, some cases, the life of the mom. That's not where the American people are. And folks said, we're not going to stand up for that, and we're going to get out and vote and make a difference. And, and if I may take a little more time on this question here, what really inspired me in particular on that issue is what we saw in Michigan. Michigan did extremely well in this election. And it was young people in particular that really turned out in huge numbers. Uh, the abortion issue was huge for, for them, women in particular. And as an example, at Michigan State University and the University of Michigan on Election Day, we have same-day registration. Students showed up to register and to vote. A little more time-consuming process. But at 8 p.m., when the polls closed, anybody who was in line could still vote. And the last student at the University of Michigan to vote was 2 a.m. They stayed in line for hours, hours to make sure that their voice was heard. That gives me great hope for our democracy. I completely agree. On that, on that point specifically, when we're talking about young people, while it is... It, <laughs> super inspiring that these people stayed for so long and that they showed up and that they voted for Democrats sometimes in the 90 percentile compared to the Republican counterparts. What, what do we do to make sure that A, we're reaching out to more young people and, and making them a centerpiece of, of our campaigns moving forward as opposed to like a special, like a subset of, of these campaigns? And, and second, how do we make it easier for them to vote because while it's great that these that there were so many young people who were willing to vote that they had to wait on lines until 2 a.m having to wait online for six hours after the polls close is still symptomatic of of a broader issue in terms of in terms of how easy it is to vote in this country yeah it is and we have to make it uh, easier in michigan's case we had we have no reason absentee they could have voted earlier they could have 
gone and registered earlier as well. So part of that is making sure we're doing a better job of communicating exactly how that process works for people uh, that that want to to vote and to have to register in order to make that happen. But I think the, the point you make about making sure we keep that engagement going continuously is, is spot on. It's just so important to do that. And that's making sure as Democrats and those of us who are privileged to serve in the Senate continue to focus on issues that are important for young people, I would say for all of us, things like climate change. Climate change is absolutely an existential threat. And if you want to look for a clear distinction between where Democrats are and Republicans are, you can't find a clearer one. You know, in the in the Inflation Reduction Act that we passed in August, uh, the most significant investments to address climate change, to move to renewable energy, to make changes that are absolutely essential to protect our planet. And when we voted for that, not one Republican voted for it. It was very clear contrast. It was Democrats who made that happen. It's Democrats who are leaning into this issue. It's an issue that is incredibly important to young folks because they're going to be dealing with this a lot more than others. And yet not one Republican supported that. So it's important for us uh, to also understand that that vote is not a one or done. We, we still have a lot of work to do. We still have to lean in on this issue. We've got a long ways to go. And folks have to have to appreciate the fact that that takes political action to make it happen. And the difference maker, as we saw in so many of these elections, are young folks who understand that this is going to impact them in a major way, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to make sure their voice is heard. Now you, you mentioned that it's going to take political action to keep young people engaged. We're going to confront a little bit of an issue in the sense that because Republicans have a majority in the House, it's going to be more difficult to pass any legislation. So how do you anticipate continuing to, to effectuate actionable changes if we're not able to pass legislation because of the Republicans' House majority? Well, certainly that's why we have to stay politically uh, active. We've got to make sure that we win those majorities back. In the Senate perspective, for example, uh, we have, we're have we at 50-50 right now. We still have the majority. But if you do the math, uh, you know, 50-50 is not really a majority. And the only reason it's a majority, thank God, we have Kamala Harris as a vice president that comes in to break that tie. But it's a, one of the reasons why we need 51, uh, at least 51 U.S. senators, and that's why the race in Georgia is so important uh, as we go into that. Uh, uh, you got to have 51 because, uh, you know, sometimes uh, one senator may have a different view, a Democratic senator may have a different view, and and that's fine, but uh, you got to have more folks that are going to be out there fighting. So it's uh, you, the math works that you can move these kinds of initiatives uh, forward. So having more votes is important. It'll be difficult uh, with where the uh, the House is. So we're going to try to work on a bipartisan way to find Republicans in the House uh, who are willing to step up and understand the, the importance of these key issues. Climate change, for example, is one that we would hope we can enlist them and to be able to get it passed. And if they don't, this is where voting comes in so important. People have to know they will be held accountable. If they're not stepping up to the big issues of the day and making the, the kind of moves to ensure that we can deal with this existential crisis, then they have to pay a price at the ballot box. And they have to know that. And that's why activism is important, not just not just on the election day, but all through that whole two-year term, that people are hearing from folks in their districts, that this is what we want. You represent us. You'd better help us on an issue that is critically important. And if you don't, we're going to come out in force to make sure we do elect someone who shares our values and shares our views. Now, what do you say to people who look at states like Ohio or Florida and, and write those states off? Like, to what extent, I guess, do having candidates at the top of the ballot, even if they lose, help down ballot candidates as well? 
Well, it does. Uh, it does have at the top, and it's still about winning uh, hearts and minds of folks. Uh, every election, you see changes, and you should. We need to have. Uh, we need to run aggressive campaigns and, and talk about uh, where we stand on on issues and how our vision for how we make uh, this amazing. Uh, the uh, constitutional democracy of ours stronger, how we're defending democracy, how we're dealing with some of the big issues uh, that we face. It's important that voters all across the country hear that message, regardless of if they're in a red or blue state. Uh, we want to make sure that people understand what's at stake. Uh, and eventually you you win people over. Sometimes it takes time. It's This is not a this is not an easy process, uh, but we have to fight literally every day and hope that we start uh, adding to those numbers around the country. So I don't give up on any area as well or any demographic group. You hear that kind of thing as well. You know, certain people are out of reach. Everybody's within reach. Some people we have to work real hard and some of them we may never win over, but we will win enough over that we will make sure that this country moves in the right direction. Yeah, and I, th I think the fact that we have two Democratic senators from Georgia, we just elected a, a Democrat at the in the at-large district in the House and in Alaska is a testament to the fact that if you don't run everywhere, you can't win anywhere. So absolutely, we've spoken about Georgia a bit. How do you hedge against Democratic apathy now that we have won the Senate? And can you also make the case for 51 versus 50 for people who may just look at this and say, you know, we're all good now? Well, I think, you know, when you when you look at Georgia and the folks who are voting in Georgia, this is still a critically important race for the people of Georgia. And they're the ones that are going to go out and make the decision as to who they send to Washington, D.C. So to keep people motivated, I think the best way to do that is to show the very clear contrast between the two candidates who are running for the U.S. Senate there. We have Raphael Warnock, a man of integrity, a man of incredible character, a man who is fully qualified and is already doing a great job in the United States Senate fighting for the people of the of the state of Georgia and, and delivering, uh, helping port facilities expand to create good jobs, uh, helping the men and women who serve uh, in, in the military at bases uh, in Georgia. Uh, he has a record of getting things done versus his opponent, uh, who is uh, not qualified, uh, I'd say he's not ready for prime time. He's not ready for any time. And, you know, it's not just me. The DSCC chair, you'd expect me to say that he's a flawed candidate. But it's not just me. We have Republicans, uh, key Republicans who have said basically he is a flawed candidate. And so this is about who do the people of the state of Georgia want to represent them in Washington, D.C.? When people look at that representative and say, is that the, somebody who represents the people of Georgia? So I think a lot is at stake in this election for the people of Georgia. Now, what's going to be a top priority of the Senate since we retained our majority there, but we'll lose a House majority? Well, we're going to continue to fight for the things that we care uh, dearly about. We've already discussed uh, climate change, which will continue to be a part of what we're going to deal with. But we also have to deal with bringing down costs for families uh, as well uh, and, and hopefully get the Republicans to join with us on those issues. You know, in August, for example, we passed legislation in that Inflation Reduction Act to reduce the price of prescription drugs. Uh, an item that uh, continues to go up at a at a rate greater than the inflation rate. And now finally, Medicare, for example, can negotiate with drug companies to get a lower price for people. And that saves uh, money for folks when they're when they're uh, struggling right now with with rising costs. And here's another example uh, in that bill. It's the same thing. We, uh, Democrats stood up to pharmaceutical companies and the big drug companies to lower the price for families of prescription drugs. And not one Republican voted for that bill. Every Republican voted against it. So if you want a clear contrast for people who stood up for the American people 
Democrats. Who stood up for the big drug companies and pharmaceutical companies? It was Republicans. That was the same Republican Party, by the way, who spent the last few months wailing about uh, how Americans aren't able to escape right. out from under the high costs that, that they're dealing with right now. So uh, the ultimate irony there. It, it, it exactly was. And, and in fact, it was fully paid for, actually reduced the deficit, which uh, that also is anti-inflationary. They voted against it. So they, they did not put their, their action uh, behind what the stuff they were saying. Right. Okay, now let's finish off with this. And I... I, I hate myself for asking this, but looking ahead to 2024, the Senate map is pretty brutal. We're defending seats in Montana, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio. And on the Republican side, meanwhile, I believe that the most flippable seats are in Texas and Florida. So not exactly a home run on that end either. What's the plan to hold on to these seats as we look ahead to that midterm cycle? Well, uh, that, and that's another reason why it's important to get 51, why we have to have Georgia as well. You got to have a little bit of a cushion when you go into that. You know, you have a cushion in trying to what we're doing now, but it's important. This seat's really critically important uh, going forward. But uh, there's uh, the, the plan to go forward will be defense. Uh, we always look at offensive opportunities, but we'll do defense. And I'll say the plan will be like a lot of what I was uh, engaged in uh, at the DS this time. And my, my focus as the DS chair was first and foremost to bring incumbents back. That's our number one job. We try to pick up extra seats if we can, but it's really about bringing our incumbents back is, is always uh, top of mind and the number one priority. And I knew in this case, if we brought, uh, especially the four that we were most concerned about, Georgia, New Hampshire, Nevada, and Arizona, when we did that, we were still at 50. Now yeah. we've picked up Pennsylvania, which is great, but we, we knew if we held those four, uh, we would still be in the majority. So we did the things that we've talked about. We built an elaborate uh, ground campaign to get the vote out. We made sure the messaging out there was showing a clear contrast as to what was at stake in the election. We had great candidates. We have great incumbents running in 24. And I suspect the Republicans are going to put up uh, a lot of folks, too, that are going to be seriously flawed. So I think a lot of the playbook that we used uh, this time can be used again. The difference, of course, will be it's a presidential year and you've got different dynamics related to the president. But I'm confident we can hold uh, hold this majority, but we have to stay engaged. And it goes back to what you brought up at the beginning, we can't be thinking about getting involved in 2024 in the summer. We got to get involved tomorrow and continue to do it through the next two years. Activism is going to be incredible. And I think when you see this majority in the House, they're going to take positions that are clearly out of step with where the American people are. And we've got to make sure we hold them accountable. Yeah, they've already announced uh, investigations into exactly what you think, which is Hunter Biden and all the like. So that should illustrate that contrast pretty clearly. So with that said, Senator Peters, thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations again. And thank you again for the work that you've done to uh, maintain our Senate majority. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Now I've got a guest who needs no introduction, 30-year former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirshner. Okay, let's get into it. Merrick Garland has announced the appointment of a special counsel to move forward with investigating Trump for both issues uh, related to January 6th and uh, stolen documents at Mar-a-Lago. So first of all, does this signal an investigation that's moving toward indictment? And I ask that because if Merrick Garland had no intention of indicting, I imagine the guy would simply say that he won't indict as, as opposed to the whole to-do that is appointing a special counsel. You know, Brian, as frustrating as it felt to hear the announcement yesterday from Merrick Garland that now another special counsel is being appointed, I actually think it could end up being a good thing. Had Merrick Garland decided that no charges should be brought against Donald Trump for either the Mar-a-Lago classified documents crimes or the January 6th insurrection, 
He simply could have made that decision himself. Um, the fact that he point, appointed a special counsel and has now entirely turned over both of those investigations to the special counsel, Jack Smith, you really can't read that any other way than it is a step in the direction of Donald Trump possibly being criminally indicted. Now, is there something to be said for the fact that this guy prosecuted war crimes at The Hague? Like, he doesn't seem like your uh, your run-of-the-mill call 1-888-ACCIDENTS uh, prosecutor here. Like, what do you know about Jack Smith? So I have been talking with my friends and colleagues, people that worked with and for Jack Smith. I'm trying to do my homework before I sort of start to talk about what those perceptions are. Here's the thing. Not only was Jack Smith a war crimes prosecutor at The Hague, he was also in charge uh, of the Department of Justice Public Integrity Section, what they call the PIN. And during his tenure there, he authorized and was involved in some pretty consequential prosecutions. The prosecution of Senator Bob Menendez um, from New Jersey, the prosecution of uh, the governor of Virginia, Bob McDonald. Now, one Democrat, one Republican, both really challenging cases, not just because of the atmospherics that it was the Department of Justice going after high government or high elected officials, um, but these were really challenging cases on the facts, on the merits. The reason I say that is the Menendez prosecution ended in an acquittal, a not guilty verdict. And, and here's the thing, Brian, give me a prosecutor any day who is willing to take a really challenging, high-profile, politically charged case to trial and lose it. That is not some sort of failing. That's not an embarrassment. In my book, that's a badge of merit. Why? Because he was willing to take difficult cases to trial. Now, yeah. he took the Governor McDonald case to trial. He won a conviction but it was reversed on appeal, again, because it was fraught with lots of challenging legal issues. But those things are not failures. In my book, those are successes. It's a sign that he was willing to take a risk, to do the hard work of bringing really difficult cases against high government officials, elected officials who violated the law. Give me that kind of a prosecutor on my team any day of the week. Yeah, com completely agree. That's a great point. Um, why appoint a special counsel to begin with? And here's why I asked this question. Merrick Garland is clearly doing this to avoid the perception of impropriety here. But when you announce that you have to recuse yourself, doesn't that validate accusations that he can't be impartial? And that might carry some weight, by the way, if it was anyone other than Merrick Garland. This guy is so impartial that that, you know, we are kind of losing our minds over it. So why validate this Republican talking point that the AG can't be impartial here. Like, why not just do the DOJ's mission of, you know, pursuing justice without fear or favor? You know, it's a great question. And um, we can certainly do an autopsy on the decision that has already been made by Merrick Garland. Um, so, so here's the thing. We already know that Donald Trump's supporters, his base, will never accept that a fair, independent, righteous investigation can be conducted of Donald Trump. Right. Um, but Merrick Garland didn't make this decision trying to convince Trump's base or Trump's loyalists or lackeys that, you know, th this was the right thing to do. Merrick Garland made this decision because there's an appearance of conflict. Let's unpack that. 
The special counsel regulations say that if the attorney general decides there are exceptional circumstances and that a special counsel would be in the public interest, then the attorney general appoints one. Here's what happened when Donald Trump announced formally he was running for the presidency in 2024. Joe Biden has been saying all along that he is going to run for a second term. That was common knowledge. The moment Donald Trump announced formally he was running, he obviously becomes Joe Biden's political opponent. Merrick Garland, like it or not, is sort of tied to Joe Biden. Joe Biden appointed him. And an attorney general is generally responsible to sort of forward the the policy and the mission of the president. Um, That is not to say the attorney general you know, doesn't make independent prosecutorial decisions without regard to the president or the White House. But listen, uh, President Biden can fire um, Attorney General Merrick Garland at any moment. So those two are aligned in a very real sense. So when you have President Biden's attorney general investigating and potentially prosecuting President Biden's only announced political opponent for re-election to the presidency, I'm sorry, that presents at least the appearance of conflict. It might actually present an actual conflict. Now, could this investigation still have been run by Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice without a special counsel? And could the American people have confidence in the integrity of the investigation? I think the answer is yes. But to avoid even the appearance of impropriety or conflict, Merrick Garland did what he thought was the right thing to do without regard to how it would be received by Donald Trump's base or his loyalists. And I think that's why he made the decision to appoint a special counsel. There is some irony here, though, in the fact that most of us believe that the reason that Donald Trump announced his presidency, his run for presidency in 2024 so early is to do exactly this, is to be able to have this talking point where he then leans back and says, look, I'm the only announced candidate for 2024. There's all these investigations into me, including uh, the one at the DOJ. Um, they're clearly trying to do this to sink my campaign. And so in a way, this is this doesn't stem out of, out of the DOJ's doing. This is exactly what Donald Trump himself wanted. But the Department of Justice can't do the wrong thing because it might give Donald Trump something he wants. You have to do the right thing without regard to how the wrong people might respond. Let's move over to uh, to some to a, a less serious player in this game, and that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. She had come out and said, Republicans, this is a quote, Republicans will need to refuse to appropriate any funding to Merrick Garland's special counsel and defund any part of the DOJ acting on behalf of the Democrat Party as a taxpayer-funded campaign arm for the Democrats' 2020 presidential nominee. Can Republicans do that? Like, to what degree can Congress, can a Republican-controlled Congress uh, control the funding for a special counsel probe that is under the purview of the DOJ? The first question is, how much legislation has Marjorie Taylor Greene successfully pushed through Congress? I think that would be about zero. Yeah, it's a short list here. (laughs) I don't take her seriously. She's not a a serious member of Congress. She is a legislative thug uh, making lots of hollow threats. I don't believe for a minute that they will defund the police that they will defund the FBI, that they will defund the Department of Justice, that they will try to defund special counsel. What I do believe they'll do is hold frivolous, 
oversight hearings. They will carpet bomb the Department of Justice with subpoenas, and then they will find all sorts of reasons to claim that DOJ didn't comply fully or quickly enough to those subpoenas. So what they can do is they can make a lot of mischief. They can make a lot of noise. But at the end of the day, I really don't believe that they can successfully impede criminal investigations or criminal prosecutions. Yeah, I think uh, I think the new quickest unit of measurement that we're going to discover is is uh, how quickly Republicans appreciate the the importance of subpoenas. The same party that spent the last uh, last couple years pretending that they uh, they have carte blanche to ignore every subpoena that comes their way. Now. Moving over to Trump, he is, of course, claiming that this is all the result of him announcing his run. That's that's what we spoke about before. He announced that he's, quote, not going to partake in it. Can he not partake in it? Uh, yes, he can and he should. If I were his lawyer, which I never would be, I would advise him don't partake in it. Why? Because you have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination sport. You're the target of the criminal investigation. You know what? When I was investigating bank robberies, guess what? The bank robber never did partake in my investigation (laughs) because the bank robber was the one I was looking to lock up. So that is sort of a pointless pointless assertion by Donald Trump. I'm not going to participate in the criminal investigation of me. Now, we often hear about you know, the nearly thousand cases so far, the nearly thousand charges um, that have been passed down for those who partook in the Capitol insurrection. And yet still nothing from the major political figures who actually incited this thing on January 6th. This might be me betraying my my ignorance here, but if the people who carried out a crime at the behest of someone were charged, then doesn't that effectively confirm that the people who incited or caused those people to act are also guilty or at least accessories to something here? It does. And that's why we go after mob bosses, not just wise guys, underbosses, capos, consigliaries, or foot soldiers. And, you know, I've been sitting in court for six weeks now watching the Oath Keepers trial, and there are trials all across federal district court in Washington, D.C. against other insurrectionists, other folks who were inspired to attack the Capitol to try to stop the certification of Joe Biden's win. And Brian, many of them are defending on, I was doing what Donald Trump told me to do, which is not a legal defense. It is mitigation. It will be considered at the time they're sentenced because to a person, every single one who has been tried by a jury has been convicted. But I think that is the frustration that so many of us feel. The foot soldiers who were ordered by Donald Trump to commit this precise crime are being held accountable. Many of them are going to prison. And Donald Trump is still out there, you know, golfing and attending dinner parties and, you know, fundraisers and, and, and announcing hold- announcing a run for president of the United States. Exactly. Holding his hate rallies. And, and and here is the thing. I am now upon reflection. We've had 24 hours to live with the special counsel announcement. I'm actually glad we have a special counsel because one thing that we all know is there have been no charges for the command structure of the insurrection, right? Donald Trump and Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, uh, Bannon, and, and, and the rest of them. And that was under Merrick Garland's leadership of the investigation. So I am actually pretty pleased that it, that the investigation has been entirely passed off 
to Jack Smith. He will now oversee both investigations. And both Merrick Garland and Jack Smith have said this will not slow the pace of the investigation, not by one minute. I would ask the question, you can't go any slower than zero <laughs> because yeah. zero is how many ruling class criminals have been held accountable. So this, you know, we're going to look back six months from now, a year from now, and we may see this as a turning point with the turn being toward prosecutions. So what should we expect to see from here as far as the special counsel probe is concerned? What happens, what happens next? Um, we should expect to hear nothing. The reason I say that is because just yesterday when I was in federal court in Washington, D.C., uh, we learned that there were three special grand juries impaneled on one day. I'm not going to say that's unprecedented, but it may very well be unprecedented. That can't be a coincidence that the same day Merrick Garland uh, announces a special counsel, we have three new special grand juries impaneled in D.C., um, so because grand jury proceedings are secret by law, I don't think we should expect to hear much in the coming weeks, perhaps even the next couple of months. Um, but let's not forget, Jack Smith stepped into an investigation that has been ongoing for a very long time. So it may very well be that the investigative teams are in a position to indict a Jeffrey Clark or a John Eastman. And if the investigation continues apace, that could very well happen in the next week or couple of months. But I, I will say, Brian, there are lots of really good investigative journalists who have staked out the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. They're watching every entrance and exit, looking to see who comes and who goes. So we may end up learning a little something about who's appearing before these special grand juries. Now, if the special counsel does choose to indict, what comes next? What 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 happens from there? So if so, so here's how the special counsel regulations are set up. If the special counsel decides to indict, he would make a recommendation to Merrick Garland. And Merrick Garland really only has two decisions. He can accept it. And given that he has decided he will be hands off and has turned the whole thing over to somebody he trusts to do this work and make these recommendations, Jack Smith, I have to believe Merrick Garland would accept a recommendation to indict Donald Trump or Mark Meadows or others. Um, and if Merrick Garland disagrees with it and says, I don't think Donald Trump should be indicted, I think that's very unlikely. But then the good thing about a special counsel uh, appointment is there's a daylight provision in the special counsel regulations that says if Merrick Garland declines to do something the special counsel has recommended, he must report that out to Congress. So there's a little bit of daylight in the process that we would not have had if we didn't have the appointment of special counsel. But to directly answer the question, if special counsel says we've got enough evidence to indict Trump, we've got the indictments drafted and prepared, Attorney General Garland, this is our recommendation. I would bet the farm on Merrick Garland approving it. And then we see indictments, we see trials, we see convictions, and we see people being held accountable for what's been done to the United States. From your lips to God's ears, we'll leave it there. Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks again to Glenn. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. 
You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review, and check out briantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels.